0: As I begin my message today, I also want to thank LifeWay for providing this sermon outline to go along with our VBS theme this week, Submerged. And our title for today is Look Below the Surface. I watched a program called Brain Games on Netflix, and it was an interesting program. I forget which station it came out on, but it it, it was these... Scientists and experts who understood the brain taking you through a series of games and illusions because the brain is so spectacular and God made it so well. But what it has to do for our own good, for our own survival, the way that God made us is in just a couple of seconds, just several seconds, it makes all sorts of snap decisions and judgments in a situation or when it meets a person. Is this person safe? Will this person be helpful to me or detrimental to me? That's also part of the selfish human being because it's all about me, right? It's all about all of us. And so our brains make these snap decisions. We, we scope a person out. We look them over without even realizing it. It happens quite naturally and instinctually. And so whenever we see something, our brains come to a conclusion of some sort, The problem with that is, is we are fallen, imperfect people, and our minds are very much a part of that fallen nature. And so the conclusions, the snap judgments, the decisions that we come to are so often faulty, are so often wrong. And, and it takes time for us to reevaluate if we will be willing to do so by the Holy Spirit of God and according to His truth and see the world and especially others the way God sees them. On that, on that Brain Games television series, they, they staged a, a robbery, a pickpocket, and they had pre- people purposely standing there not knowing why they were standing there. And then they had this robbery occur, and then they took them individually to give their eyewitness accounts. And it was, it was amazing and, 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 frankly, a little bit disturbing to me to see how varied their accounts were. And just to be a little bit sneaky, they first brought them together and began to ask questions. And there were some people who had been planted in the group to give false information, to purposely give false information, which then planted ideas and information in their brain so that when they went in there, it was amazing to see how many people agreed with this purposely false information. And the point is this, my friends, the point is this, church, we can't always trust what we see. We can't always trust our own minds because they are a part of the fallen nature to come to proper conclusions and right decisions. We can't always trust ourselves to make correct judgments, especially when it comes to other people. I didn't tell Canaan I was going to do this, and I hope that he's not offended or hurt by this, but but I'll be totally honest, and I've told him this before. When I first saw his resume, I just kind of skipped over it. He didn't have the full-time experience that we were looking for. So I just thought, no, this isn't the guy we're looking for. And so I just passed on by. And then when I listened to one of his messages, it wasn't the, you know, jumping up and down, screaming, high-octane kind of youth pastor message that you think a youth pastor should be like. But I'm here to tell you now that God showed us his will. And thankfully, I didn't depend on my own thoughts, but I depended on God's will because God sent us the exact right man. He speaks truth. He loves our kids. He's organized. He's dependent. And, he, and, and, and that, that high octane energy came out. It just came out in the right order. So praise God that my improper, incorrect judgment didn't determine for us our future. But God showed us who his man was. And we're going to look at a story like that today, where maybe the the person that was the right person didn't appear at first to be the right person for the job. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? What? the heart that's right as we turn to first samuel chapter 16 we we pick up in the in the reign of the first monarch of israel the first king king saul remember the people asked for a king god said no i'm your king and they said no we want we want a king we want somebody that we can see someone that we can talk to someone that can rule over us in our presence in our midst and god warned them you don't want a king He will enslave your sons and daughters. He will make life difficult for you. But God, that's okay. Give us a king. So he gives them what they want. He gives them what they want. He gives them what they ask for. He gives them a king and it's King Saul. And we soon find out King Saul is far less than perfect. And he's far less godly than they'd hoped for. He was He was tall. He was strong. He was good looking. He was everything that you think a king should be. He was commanding. He was decisive. But we come to find out that he wasn't godly. He didn't have strong character, even though he had strong muscles. And we find out not too far into his, his reign that he begins to fall off the wagon, so to speak. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God tells him to go and to fight the Amalekites. And, and he gives them this very explicit instruction. He says, kill every man, woman, child, and animal. Don't leave a single thing alive. Now you can argue with God on why he would say that. And that's probably another sermon for another time. But God says that to Saul. But does Saul obey? No, he does not. He goes and and he destroys the Amalekites, save for one person, their king, King Agog. And he brings them back as a prisoner. And and, and something else, and I found this interesting, he was willing to kill all the people, but he kept all the animals, the good animals, the clean animals, the, the, the fat animals. We see in First Samuel fifteen nine, But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And what was the standard for worthless and despised? It was their own reckoning, their own measuring, their own minds but we kept what we saw as good. what well, we kept what we saw as right. I mean, we kept the king alive because that would cause for better friendships with other territories, other peoples. And, and we kept the sheep because, God, we gotta eat. And, 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 and then Saul comes up with this brilliant idea, but God, we kept them so that we could sacrifice them to you. And, and, and we get this beginning sentence that we hear throughout the whole Old Testament. God desires obedience, not sacrifice, because it's a heart issue. That's what Samuel says to Saul. You can make all the sacrifices in the world, but the fact of the matter is you disobeyed him. Your heart wasn't right. You thought you knew better than God. Not only that, but after winning the battle, Saul comes to Mount Carmel and he builds to himself a monument, not an altar to God, but a monument to himself. Once again, we begin to see the kind of heart that Saul had. And so we pick up in chapter 16, and would you stand with me today if you are able in honor of God's word? 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll read verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the, say it again, heart. That's right. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet this youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was re- Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. You can be seated. I want to point out today from this passage three things that God sees When he looks, three things that God sees when he looks at us, his people. The first thing that God sees, as we find out here, as as you repeated with me man looks at the outward appearance, but God what? He looks at the heart. God sees the heart. You'll notice as Samuel comes to Jesse and kind of lets him in on what's going on here we're looking for a king. God has told me that he's one of your sons. Jesse lines up seven of his sons. And and who is missing from this lineup as we find out at the end of the story? Who's missing? David. Now, when Samuel says to him, line up your sons, one of your sons is the future king of Israel, the, the assumption is that he would line up every single one of his sons, But Jesse is so sure, so confident that it could never be David. He doesn't even bother going to get him. He can't be far away. It's not like he's days away. Samuel says, we're going to stand up until he comes. So, you know, if he would have been three, four, five hours away, Samuel would not have made that commitment. We won't sit down. You know what? Let's take a load off. Let's rest. David will be here in a couple hours. No, I don't think he was that far away. And yet David is so far from Jesse's mind. Jesse is so sure that David could never be king. This young squirt of a boy could never be king. It's not even worth going to get him. Let's not bother him. It's definitely one of the seven. But as we see in this story and many others, God sees the heart. As Jesse presented Eliab, Samuel was impressed by what he saw and likely heard. So even Samuel is jumping to conclusions here. Eliab is stall and Thatcher. He's a mountain of a man. He's impressive as you look at him. And you would think, surely this is the king. I mean, look what kind of king God chose the first time. Saul, tall, strong, impressive. Why wouldn't it be the same for the next king? So Samuel jumps to the same conclusion. Surely it's Eliab. Surely this is him. God wouldn't pass over him. I mean, look at him. And and most likely, he was well-spoken. You'd want a well-spoken king who has to make speeches and rally the troops to assure the people and make them confident that he's ready to go at any moment, that he's a strong king and they can trust him and stand behind him. And so Samuel was ready to choose Eliab as the next king of Israel because of what he physically experienced, what he physically saw. But we find out that God's interested in what can't be seen, in what Samuel wasn't able to see. We make snap-snap judgments with our eyes, but God looks much deeper than that, and so must we. Because isn't our desire to know and do God's will? What, what does Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come. What's the next verse? your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and God's will and and those that he chooses to use in his purposes, in his kingdom, requires a certain heart, requires a certain attitude, requires a certain character. And, And all appearances can hide what's really underneath. But God is not fooled. He's not fooled by the facade of others and, and church. He's not fooled by our facade. He's not fooled by our pretenses, what we put up. We can't fool God. For me, that's a scary thought this morning because I can fool you all. I can I can put on my my clothes, my face, I can shave and trim and and groom. I can say nice things and act nicely. And if it's not the truth of my heart, if it's not the reality of my character, God is not fooled one bit. He sees past it all. God isn't just interested in what we do. He's interested in why we do it, the motives of the heart. That's why God wasn't interested in Saul's sacrifices or, or in Israel's sacrifices all throughout their history. I'm not interested in your sacrifices. I'm not interested in your actions alone. Yes, obedience is good, and that's, and that's the issue here. But, but God, sacrificing is obedience. You commanded it, and I'm doing it. And so the point is, I'm not interested in just your outward obedience, in your facades, in your pretenses, in your good actions. What's the motive? Why? Is it to honor me? Is it to glorify me? Is it because you love me? Is there, as Canaan said earlier, a joy in giving out of love for God and desire to see his kingdom advanced? Why do we do what we do? We see this in the New Testament as well. In Revelation chapter 2, of course, we see that John, or Jesus through John, is writing to the seven churches. And remember what he says to Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus? You've done all these things right, but one thing I have against you, and what is it, church? You've forsaken your first love. You you have. You're right. You've done everything right. Right? You've you've done this and and you've done this. You've you've given and and you've acted reverently and you've had your church services and you sang beautiful songs. You gave your tithes and offerings. You went on the mission trips. You had a tremendous benevolence ministry. You decorated really well for vacation Bible school. But I have this against you. Your heart's not in it. It's not out of a a love and a desire for me. Your hunger isn't for me. I'm not your treasure anymore. Maybe it's good deeds. Maybe it's looking good to one another or the community. But you've forsaken your first love. You're not doing it for the right reasons. And so we have this command in Jeremiah 17.10. God says he tests the heart to test our motivations for our actions. He tests our hearts. In fact, we're going to look at a little bit later. That's what David asks for. Test my heart, oh God. See if there be any iniquity in me. There's this constant question of God, are my motives right? Are my intentions correct? Is my heart clean before you? Because all the good works in the world, all the self-righteousness gets me nowhere with you. Because as Isaiah says, it's as filthy rags compared to what he does that's good. And so all the contributions that we can make of right actions get burnt up if it doesn't come with a right heart. And what is a right heart? It's a dependent heart, one that depends on God in everything. It's a loving heart. It's a sincere heart. It's a caring heart. It's a compassionate heart. It's a heart that looks like the heart of Jesus. Friends, God sees the heart, and that's what matters. We can't be impressed by what's on the outside, but we must ask the question of others, and more importantly, most importantly of ourselves, what's on the inside? Now, when we start looking internally it gets kind of scary. That's why people don't like to do it. That's why we hesitate to do it. That's why we don't like to be quiet. That's why we don't like to to begin to ask the hard questions of God in regard to ourselves. That's why quiet times are so difficult for people to have because in the quiet time is when God begins to speak to us. And what he speaks to first, most normally, is he speaks to our own hearts. Because we got, we've got to get the plank out of our eye before we can help anybody else with a splinter in theirs. And, and that's a loving thing to do. That's not judgment. That's going to them and saying, God wants best, better for all of us. God wants better for you and, and this thing or this, this person or, or whatever it is in your life. God has a better plan. In fact, isn't that the heart of the gospel? We go to sinners and we say, God wants something better for you. He wants to offer you life through his son. But it's in those moments of self-evaluation that things get very uncomfortable for us because we begin to realize how messed up we are inside. Because, Because we can clean up the facade. We can polish and put makeup on. We can dress up. We can even put up our masks. But the inside... If it's not a real cleanup, it's not clean. And it stays messy. It's like, it's like your house. It looks really good. You've got the fresh coat of paint on. You've got your yard manicured and groomed. And then you walk in, and it's a pigsty in there. Now, I'm not saying your house is a pigsty. I'm just saying you, you know what I'm saying. But here's the good news, my friends. We begin to look on the inside, and we go, ooh, ooh ooh, I don't don't want to look any longer. That's why we look at others, right? Because we feel better about ourselves. We look at their messes. We look at their problems. We look at their hearts. Because we don't want to look at our own. But let me tell you number the second thing that God sees when he looks at his people. God sees his strengths in our weaknesses. Because every single one of us, we know from Romans 6.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so all of our hearts, apart from Christ, are messed up. Our lives are messed up. It is not pretty in here. I will tell you that. And God looks down and he sees the mess of our hearts. He sees the chaos of our lives. He sees us trying to make everything look good and and, and put the the pictures up and, and put the shades up and put the facades up. But he sees through all of that and he sees the mess that it is. He sees what we're trying to hide. And in his divine Justice, yes, he recognizes this is not right. And I cannot accept that. I can't even be in the presence of that. I'm too holy. I'm too just. I'm too perfect. But through Jesus Christ, he begins to see his strengths in our weaknesses. Didn't Jesse dismiss David because of his weaknesses? He's just this young, scrawny kid. Why would God ever make him king? As we see once again, David's father didn't even invite him to be considered as one of his sons, or at least one of the sons that would be considered for king. And, and in, in his own words, when Samuel says, do you have any other sons? And, and I'm sure Jesse's like, well, I mean, yeah, I do, but... He's not even an option. What does he say? Well, he's a young kid and he's just a shepherd. Now, one of the monikers, one of the names that Jesus has, he is the great, what? Shepherd. And so we could say, even though he was a carpenter on Earth, Jesus is just a shepherd. and we chuckle at that because we know he's so much more than just a shepherd. Or you could say, Praise God, he's a shepherd. He's the shepherd of my heart. He left the 99 to come after this one. And he took the staff of his love and he pulled me out of my sin by his grace and by his own blood. Mm, what's a shepherd good for? I'd say quite a bit. He's young and he's just a shepherd. Now, we can give Jesse a hard time, right? We can even give Samuel a hard time. They're, they're Bible characters, as we would call them, even though they were real people. They're Bible characters distanced by thousands of years from us. And so we can point fingers. We can say how terrible, how wrong, because we know the rest of the story. But would we not have thought or done the exact same thing if we would have been in their shoes in their time? Because do we ever think like that? He's just a, she's just a blank. Do we ever discount people because of their job, their education, or their family origin? Now, obviously, there are character or integrity issues that we must consider and deal with. I'm not saying that we tell anybody, whatever, I I was listening to the briefing this past week with Dr. Moeller, and and they were saying that we shouldn't ever judge anybody. We shouldn't make any moral judgments about anybody. And we refute that argument very quickly as a parent when we're considering who can babysit our children. Do you consider some moral issues when you hire a babysitter? Or do you just say, whoever, whatever, no matter what they've done, they can come take care of my kids. No, we make some moral judgments, right? And so I'm not saying we don't make moral judgments. I'm not saying we don't look at the heart and consider the character. But are we willing to take the time to look past what's on the outside, to see what's on the inside? We mustn't discount people from God's service because they don't fit into some external mode or mold that we've concocted based on our human biases. We don't overlook people because they don't look like us or dress like us or smell like us. We ought never ignore the ones who aren't as charming as we think they should be. They don't don't exude some external charisma that we think a person should have, or they can't be a proper minister of the gospel. And again, please don't confuse what I'm saying here. Jesus says, blessed are the meek and merciful. And he goes on to say that peacemakers are also blessed. Blessed. There's something to be said about the heart of one who controls their tongue and is, lo- is lovingly kind in all their dealings such that people are naturally drawn to them. I believe that Jesus was like that even in the midst of some very hard truths he had to speak. It's not that he always said nice things, okay? There's a huge difference between kind and nice, But it's not some outward political correctness or charming facade that God honors. He looks at the heart. And so must we, as much as we are able. But when he looks, he doesn't discount us. Because that's the point. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin are death. That's right. The wages of sin is death. And so God has every right as the perfect holy maker of the universe to discount us, to discard us, to completely overlook us, and and actually to strike us dead in this very place, in this very moment. But he looks at the heart and he sees his strengths in our weaknesses. So how do we do that? How do we look at a person's heart? And even though it's not perfect, even though it's not everything that we think it should be, it doesn't match our standards, which we ourselves don't match up to usually, but we give ourselves a lot more leeway than normally we'll give someone else. How do we do that? Well, we just have to admit that to a point we are limited in our ability to see beyond the surface. We have to admit, I can't see as God sees. I don't see perfectly. My my glasses are shaded by what I see on the outside. I'm impacted. I'm biased. And I have to pray through that every single day. I have to work through that every single day. And that never goes away. Now, I think it gets better. I think we get better at seeing past that. But I don't get to get rid of this mind, this brain. I don't get to get rid of these eyes. And so I just have to be aware that I am infected, I'm tainted by sin, and therefore I see imperfectly. But I would go on to say that, how do we look at the heart? We mustn't ride the bandwagon of public opinion and social acceptance. We don't buy into that. We don't say, what do you think, world? And I'll think the same way. We don't say, what are our social standards that we have here at Covenant. Because, I mean, we want to keep things looking nice. We don't want people to think bad of us. We need to have a certain type of people in our church. We mustn't buy into that. We mustn't get on that bandwagon. How do we overcome the imperfection? Well, we must ask from and trust the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual x-ray vision. And I know that this is possible. I know that this can happen because it happened for Jesus. Now you say, but he was God. And and yes, he was, you're right. He was God. But something that I think we often forget is that Jesus was not omniscient or all-knowing while in flesh. And I know that to be true because first off in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, we see that Jesus set aside his divine attributes during his incarnation, Familiar popular verse, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he is God. He did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped or made use of or utilized or taken advantage of. That's what that word means there. But what did he rather do? Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he never stopped being God. Do you hear that, right? He wasn't part God, half God, appeared to be God. He was always 100% God. And with his divine attributes, he was able to, in, in a sense, compartmentalize his divine attributes and put them to the side for a time. Because although his overarching purpose was to honor the Father by dying for us, part of his purpose was to show us how to walk by the Spirit, how to live this way. And, and how could he sympathize with us in every way, as it says in Hebrews, if he wasn't, if he had his divine attributes the whole time? He knew everything. Of course, he wasn't going to sin. He's God. But Paul tells us here in Philippians that he put that to the side for the time being, and he didn't live out of that. How did he live? Well, first off, let me once again prove to you that he wasn't omniscient. Luke two fifty two it tells us, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, if you are all knowing, if you are omniscient, how do you increase in knowledge or wisdom? If you already know everything, there's there's nowhere to go from there. You don't increase. But the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus did increase. He grew in wisdom. And so how did Jesus walk? How how did he make it? How did he do so well? How did he finish the way he did? Well, he walked by and depended on the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 4, we have him going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, by the devil. And right before he walks into the wilderness, and it says, and being led by the who? Spirit. Jesus went into the wilderness to be tested. Jesus walked by the Spirit. And how many times do you have coyotes in your church? Would one of you mind just pulling that door shut? I think that'll take care of everything. I love it. I love kids. It's life, and I love the sound of it. Don't get me wrong here, but I also think it can be distracting to us. I know it is to me right now. I'm thinking, sweet, we got coyotes. (laughs) Now, what was the next word I was going to say? (laughs) How many times do we read throughout the Gospels when it says, but Jesus knew their hearts? the Pharisees the Sadducees they would ask a question but Jesus knew their hearts he he knew the motive he knew where it was coming from he knew what their plan was that's how Jesus walked that's how he knew and so i know that we have the same holy spirit at our disposal He's there for us. He's inside of us, leading us. And so we can ask, oh God, would you help me to see people's hearts and not their faces, not their clothes, not their outsides. Help me to see their character and the integrity and help me to see them and love them as you do. That's the point. God so gladly sees and provides his strength in our weaknesses. In Isaiah 41.10, God says that he provides the strength needed for his In fact, it begins, fear not, for I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In fact, we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about his weaknesses, his trials, the thorn in his flesh that just won't go away, that God won't take away. And what does Christ say to Paul? My power is made perfect in what? Your power weakness, for when I am, Paul says, for when I am weak, then he is strong. That's the point. God never asked you to be strong. He asked you to be dependent in his strength. He never commanded you to get it right all the time. Although he does say, be holy as I am holy. So maybe he does a little bit. But, but the point is this. He sees your heart. He knows you're not. He knows you won't. And so what does he tell you to do? Trust my son who is strong, who is perfect, who's all of those things that you will never be. And this is the point, the last thing that God sees when he looks at us. This is the whole point. When God looks at you, if you have trusted his son as your Lord and Savior, he doesn't see you. Oh, praise God. Praise God, because just last week I did this, or just last month I did this, or even right now, God, I'm in church, I'm supposed to be praising you, but I'm thinking about that person, and I'm not real, this is hypothetical right now, I'm thinking about that person that said that thing to me just yesterday, and I am ticked off, or that situation that didn't go the way I should think it should have gone, because some idiot got in the way. And then I stop to think, ooh, I'm the idiot. I'm the sinner. I'm the screw up. And then I'm reminded, but God no longer sees me, he sees his son. He sees the righteousness, the perfection of his son covering me. I am hidden in Christ. And now there is no condemnation, none whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. David, like all the champions God used before and after him, were far from sinless. David was far from sinless. We know he was a messed up man, and we see that well into his his reign. I mean, goodness, gracious, adulterer, murderer. At times, a very poor father. His daughter gets raped and he does nothing about it. What in the world is this guy doing being king? Why in the world would God pick him? I think part of the reason, this is why we should never discount anyone, is because God chooses the one who is least likely to excel so that when... When success comes, God gets the credit, amen? That's right. That's that's probably why he picked me to be your pastor, and you're probably thinking, and probably still are, what in the world was God thinking? Thank you. And I'm just here to tell you, God is getting all kinds of glory from my life, but probably not in the way that you think. (laughs) Because in my mess-ups, he is honored. Now, I, I, I really try not to mess up. And and there is something to be said about sanctification, about holiness. I'm not discounting those things. Because as Christ lives in me, hopefully I look more and more like him. I become more and more like him. The is becomes what I really am in Christ. But David was far from sinless. And yet, who did God choose as the next king? David. And and God knew exactly what David would do. God wasn't surprised by the adultery and the murder. He wasn't taken off guard by the poor fathering at times. God knew it all. And he still chose to anoint David. Which, you know what? I said sometimes we give ourselves the most leeway. Sometimes we're also our worst critic, right? And, And we say, God would never want me to do that. God would never call me to do that. Guess what? If he's putting it on your heart or maybe even putting it in your face, there's a good chance he's calling you. Don't discount yourself either. No, there is grace in David's sin and there's grace in yours, but there are also consequences. It, It comes with service. There's responsibility. There's accountability. And even though he was... Imperfect, and God overlooked that in choosing him, when David sinned, there was still a consequence, there was still a price, and David lost his son because of it. So sin still matters, please hear me. But one day, one day for all sin, God would lose his son to make all the wrong right. And so God saw a future perfect son and king who would die so David's sin could be forgiven. It's the very reason he can use you and does use you and does call us in his service. It's because of his son. That's how God looks at the heart. Ultimately, he looks at the heart of his son for those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. And he says, you are useful. I can use you. Because of my strength, because of my son, because of my heart, because of my strength. You are useful because it really, church, other than your faith and your willingness to follow him, it really has nothing to do with us. My strengths, my weaknesses, my abilities, my inabilities. Those are the things that really don't matter if I surrender to him because it's always his strength, it's always his ability, it's always his son, it's always his power, it's always his love. And we just surrender to all those things. And he does something beautiful and we're not surprised that he does because he is God so church, let us have the heart of Christ. Let us look past the exterior in others and in ourselves and let us offer our hearts up to God to make them pure, to make them white as snow, to make them and mold them and shape them into exactly what he wants them to be and what he can make them into and then to do something only he can do. And we will not be shocked. We will not be surprised. We will be grateful and we will praise him because he did exactly what God always does. In closing, I think of Fanny Crosby, born Frances Jane Crosby. This woman wrote more than 9,000 hymns, some of which are among the most popular in our hymn books, in every Christian denomination. A few of the many are Blessed Assurance, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, To God Be the Glory, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Rescue the Perishing. And one of my favorites, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. She wrote so many, in fact, that she was forced to use pen names at times, lest the hymnals be filled primarily with her name above all others. And for most people, as you may well know, the most remarkable thing about this woman, other than her trust in Jesus and all that he did through her, was that she did all of it in spite of being blind. Born in Putnam County, New York in 1820, Crosby became ill within two months of her birth. And unfortunately, the family doctor was out of town at the time. And so another man, a charlatan, pretending to be a doctor, treated her by prescribing hot mustard poultices to be applied to her eyes. Now, in spite of that, her illness got better. She did survive, but these poultices took away her eyesight and left her blind the rest of her life. A few months later, Crosby's father died, and so her mother was left alone, raising her and her brothers and sisters as a single mother. But at a very early age, this young girl, blind, fatherless, poor, began to write and love poetry. And even from an early age... Her poetry echoed a gratefulness to God and a refusal to feel sorry for herself. Listen to this, one of her first poems written at age eight. Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, I won't. And as she became an adult and began to be known for her poetry and hymns, one well-meaning preacher once remarked, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you so many other gifts upon you. And Fanny Crosby responded at once, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever Gladden my eyesight with will be that of my Savior. You know, I wonder if she didn't have something that we don't have. She didn't make snap judgments by what she saw, she listened, she experienced. She didn't see how people dressed, she didn't see what they looked like. She listened to hearts. She listened to words that out of the mouth comes the content of the heart. She heard character, and she ministered without the burden of sight. And, oh, church, that we would close our eyes, that we might see with our hearts, that we might look into others and ourselves, and even with all the messes, we would say that is one that Jesus died for and by his strength, and by his power, and by his love. Through this one, through this one, he can do much. And as Fanny Crosby wrote, to God be the glory. Great things he has done.